you have your fear, which might become reality. And you have Godzilla, which is reality. Hello, YHS on Monster Island listeners. This is Jay Key, and if you can guess by now, because I did the intro, I am without the tattooed titan of Tokusatsu, Mr. Jacob Walsh. And this is just a little mini episode, just something to you know whet the appetite before we get into bigger YHS on Monster Island things. And really, honestly, I just it was one of those things where I was just in the mood to watch this film, and I watched it, and I just had some thoughts, and I wanted to just say them. And that's the whole kind of the whole uh, reason, the impetus behind this recording. And you know, I know. The Valley of Guanji is not technically a kaiju. It's a dinosaur movie. But, I mean, if you think about it, how outdated these depictions of these theropods are or were, the tail draggers, um, they're basically monsters because they are probably closer to uh, Godzilla and, and Japanese kaiju, at least in, in appearance and stance and posture than maybe real dinosaurs. So, um, but anyway, and just a little bit of background, and I mentioned this on one of the early uh, shows, one of the early episodes of Why Just on Monster Island, is that, you know, really next to Godzilla and Kaiju, Ray Harryhausen has to be number two uh, in my kind of most important to me and what I enjoy and I watch. I mean, specifically the Sinbad movies, uh, the, the Greek mythology movie, so Jason, the Argonauts, Clash of Titans, of the Titans, excuse me, and, and Valley of Guanji. It's one that a movie I've seen dozens of times since I was young as a dinosaur fan, as a Harryhausen fan, as a stop motion fan. And it's one that, you know, um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's one that I've been a little conflicted on at times. So maybe by me getting to talk to you, I can help iron out those thoughts. So if you're ready, let's, let's, you know, spend a few minutes here and talk a little Valley of Guanji. Ladies and gentlemen, what you are about to see has never been seen before by human eyes. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard. So since I was a, a young lad, a young boy, I've always been torn regarding the merits of Valley of Guanji. My uh, my Harryhausen-loving heart always told me it was a spirited effort, albeit with its fair share of flaws, but none too cataclysmic and, and damning to discard it into the scrap heap of stop-motion garbage. Uh, and part of me always thought that outside the general premise of cowboys and dinosaurs, which is still very, very genius, by the way, it was out of place with its genre cousins. Predictable, recycling cliched plot devices, and just without that 
additional magical quality, that it factor of a Sinbad or the sailor, not the comedian, of course, uh, or uh, Jason the Argonauts. However, after this last rewatch that I just did of Guanji, I was pleasantly surprised with how well the film held up. I mean, it wasn't great, Harry Hosen. Uh, you know, it wasn't one of his seminal works by any means. Uh, and it didn't quite conjure up those iconic images that would make, you know, John Ford feel like a city slicker, but it wasn't half bad. Uh, in fact, its impact on pop culture doesn't really get its due credit. I mean, just ask Steven Spielberg, who always cites it as an influential film, uh, or uh, Dr. Ross Geller, um, uh, Friends. Um, he, he's a big Valley of Guanji fan. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you told me that I could see dinosaurs battling circus elephants, pteranodon wing smashes, a former Miss World runner-up, um, that, uh, you know, horses leaping into pools, uh, uh, a neohippus, uh, the, the world's longest roping scene, uh, at least it sure does feel that way, all in the same movie, I would tell you, sign me the hell up. And uh, and that's what Guanji does. So, you know, a little bit of backstory. The the origins of Valley of Guanji started, you know, many years before its release in 1969. Uh, special effects pioneer and the creator of the incomparable King Kong uh, and Harry Hausen's mentor, Mr. Willis O'Brien, considered the idea of a dino-western hybrid decades earlier in an unproduced script called Valley of the Mists. As he progressed uh, into his golden years, uh, his later years, it remained a pet project, but he was never able to make Mr. Reality. And though some argue that his the 56 Beast of Hollow Mountain, produced by O'Brien, really kind of fully realized that dream of pitting prehistoric beasts versus gunslingers, vaqueros, uh, cowboys, it, it can't be denied that the future Valley of Guanji script did inspire this O'Brien offering, but Mist was meant to be an entirely unique production. And six years after his death, his star pupil, Harry Hausen, was able to get the project off the ground, and it would be Harry Hausen's last dinosaur-focused animation in his career, and it would be his most labor-intensive, needing over 300 dynamation cuts to complete. That was a record for Mr. Harry Hausen, so pretty cool stuff there. Um, and, you know, the, the premise is pretty standard fare in that it tends to be uh, and it tends to be its, its biggest critical hurdle, right? Director uh, Jim O'Connolly from Horror on Snape Island and Mistress Pamela and writer William Bass, the man in the Iron Mask, uh, legend of Lizzie Borton, the Colbys, uh, did really nothing in this film to uncover new thematic roads when the Mesozoic world crashes into the Old West. Between kind of some reprocessed archetypes of an undiscovered land in which prehistoric beasts live and they've survived and uh, the, the unyielding clutches of time, the, the greed-fueled notion of capturing one of these relics and displaying them for the masses to marvel and pay and the all-too-familiar local prophecy of doom uh, when the natural world is exploited in the name of capitalism, uh, you're introduced to... Secondhand stock characters uh, like the swindling playboy, incapable of settling down, is until he's you know confronted with that requisite tragedy to generate the necessary epiphany, and he's oh a better man now. Uh, the rogue orphan child that turns out to be the steady pool of wisdom to his adult counterparts, and of course the gypsy soothsayer that can prognosticate on the consequences of the out of towners' disruptions. Um, you know, these are all straight out of central casting, kind of. Uh, for me, it's not these retreads, though, that define the weaknesses of Guanji's plot and its performance. It's the amount of character pivots 
and the tendency that the film has um that the you know the pacing denigrate key plot moments into this kind of in these anticlimactic kind of easily forgettable events i think that's really i think the biggest thing is just these the waffling of the characters and you know Guanji is set the the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, excuse me, in Mexico. And as we all know, the best thing about turn of the century Mexico is the abundance of second tier rodeos and beautiful stunt women. Uh, lucky for us, the entire story is built around this very thing. Tuck, played by the legendary James Franciscus, a former rodeo entertainer, part used car salesman, used horse salesman, I guess. Uh, he, uh, you know, part rugged tough guy. Uh, he returns to his former colleagues as a successful promoter of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show to kind of rub it in their faces, I guess. <laughs> I guess that was really the only the only reason I saw him returning there. Um, nice guy, right? Uh, ultimately, we discovered that he just wants to buy him out. More sp- specifically, the star of the act involving his miss and uh, his former. Lover, the glamorous uh, T.J. Breckenridge, former Miss World runner-up, was it Gila Gila Golan? Is that how you say her name? I don't know. But anyway, uh, a beautiful lady. Um, That uh, that star would be none other than Omar the Wonder Horse. Now, after befriending this local street urchin, Lope, played by Curtis Arden, Tuck approaches Breckenridge, but predictably is denied. I mean, we saw that coming. It turns out... Breckenridge and her ragtag rodeo outfit have a little surprise, El Diablo. As you could have guessed, El Diablo is an Eohippus. Because, yeah, why why not, right? Um, okay, maybe I need to take back some of the anger of the plot recycling. This is definitely the first, uh, they were first to market on the miniature, you know, Equid ungulate front. I mean, really, truly, I, I don't know if Eohippus had been in any films uh, before this, uh, since it wouldn't be, uh, since it wouldn't take too much sense from a realism standpoint to have a tiny horse be the main attraction at a Wild West show, since we have all seen ponies before. The fully fleshed out idea from Breckenridge and Tim was to have team was to have El Diablo dance on the back of Omar the Wonder Horse. Unfortunately, we don't get to see this in the movie, so big miss there. That would have been. Uh, amazing. The, but we learned soon after that we learned from local gypsies led by uh, Tia Zarina, uh, which is played by Frida Jackson, are pretty sure that the Eohippus is cursed. Yes, it is an Eohippus in the Old West. It is cursed uh, and must be returned to the Forbidden Valley from whence it came. So TJ and crew have no plans to do this since they're about to blow the minds off of all the locals and make lots of cash with this horse-on-horse dance routine, this boogieing of horse-on-horse. So with the aid of a crusty British paleontologist, Horace Bromley, played by Lawrence Naismith, and Horace Bromley is about as crusty and British of a uh, paleontologist name that you can get. Uh, And thanks to the uh, assumptive testimony of the former gypsy-turned-rodeo entertainer and pursuer of the beautiful T.J. Breckenridge, Carlos, played by Gustavo Rojo, Tuck Bromley, uh, who is interested in discovering more prehistoric specimens, T.J., Carlos, and the whole gang all convene on the edge of the Forbidden Valley to track down the gypsies and El Diablo. Um, you know, so, yeah. So the gypsies steal the horse and are still El Diablo, and then they have to track him down. So once they enter this forsaken land, a pteranodon, everybody's favorite pterosaur, swoops in and tries to steal 
our little orphan friend Lope. Now, Bromley refers to it as a pterodactyl, and yes, friends, the paleontologist swings and misses on a fairly common pterosaur species. Good job, Mr. Bromley. Uh, the beast has to return to the ground uh, due to the weight of the homeless miner, and then he proceeds to smash him with his wing, which is awesome, but probably was not a naturally occurring behavior of this species. Neither were the bird-like claws that were able to temporarily lift Lopi in the air. We know that that is not a common trait of pterosaurs, whether it's Tranodons or Quetzalcoatlus or Dimorphodons or Pterodactylus or Amphorhynchus or whatever you want to do. So, Carlos jumps in and breaks the, uh, breaks the winged reptile's neck, and there was much rejoicing. So after that, prehistoric playtime does continue as TJ, Tuck, and the gang spot an Ornithomimus and decide to chase it because it would be way cooler than an Aohippus, and I agree there. In one of the most iconic moments in dino cinema, as the Ornithomimus escapes into the valley, the all-powerful Guanji appears in screen and snags the stealthy biped in his jaws. Now, if the Jurassic Park scene that features a different, you know, theropod coming from a seem, coming seemingly coming out of nowhere and you know snaring a Gallimimus looks familiar. It's because our valley-dwelling Allosaurus here, Mr. Guanji, was a direct influence. Guanji himself is typical of dinosaur representations of the time, you know, upright, clunky, the tail dragger, far less sleek than their modern depictions. Um, but, you know, he's quite large for an Allosaurus, uh, but maybe they just grow bigger in the Forbidden Valley. Um, and then, you know, to get too, you know, focus here on the paleobiological accuracy of the film, but I mean, it's something to talk about. Despite the apparent lack of accuracy, Guanji does have a personality. And it's a tastefully rendered monster that fits his surroundings. After some time, you know, some meaningless plot developments occur and a Stracosaurus cameo, also an outdated depiction, the crew encounters Guanji face-to-face and he's looking for trouble. So Carlos, Tuck, and the troops decide to capture Guanji by roping him because, after all, they are cowboys. What ensues, what ensues really could be best described as a sleep aid because... Um, you know, it was, uh, it was one of the most difficult scenes for Harryhausen to shoot roping, you know, the thing about that in the world of stop motion animation, trying to get these multiple ropes, trying to wrangle in an Allosaurus, pretty crazy. However, let's just say that it outstays its welcome. Uh, and the novelty of lassoing a giant dinosaur wears off after a few minutes and it just meanders on and on and on. So our uh, multi-horned Ceratopsian friend returns, the Stracosaurus, and Guanji just simply breaks free of the ropes. Why on earth did I just sit through five minutes of lassoing when that just happened? I don't know. Another memorable battle ensues with Guanji predictably, predictably defeating the Stracosaurus because the movie is called the Valley of Guanji, not Valley of Stracosaurus. So Guanji chases the cowboys out of the valley, kills Carlos without much fanfare. Um, and there was much rejoicing by some, maybe. Uh, and then uh, the dreaded anticlimax rears its ugly head uh, in this film again. And it won't be the last time that we get this kind of anticlimactic uh, moment, which I mentioned earlier. So after a well-timed rock slide that features motionless plastic model of Guanji, like seriously, it's it's that bad, um, the op- opportunistic showmen lock him up and plan to take him back to town in an all-new star-studded extravaganza. Yes, this is just like O'Brien's Unforgettable Eight movie, uh, and which is basically a repurpose of his Lost World. Um, so O'Brien was a big believer that you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and this is uh, this is that mantra in action again. 
So on the eve of Guanji's debut, Tuck finally agrees to settle down with TJ and give up his wild ways, but the beauty of the Badlands herself decides that she doesn't need him now and that she is going to be a success all on her own. So you go, TJ. Uh, A very quick character pivot, if you ask me, but, you know, she pivots even more rapidly when Lope uh, tells her that she shouldn't be such a money-grubbing witch. So maybe he's like Dr. Lope. Uh, so these uh, these people really just are so easily influenced. And like I said, those pivots, there's so many of them. So before the the first show featuring Guanji, everybody had already forgot about poor El Diablo, poor Eohippus. You know, he was such a big part of the first uh, act, and now he's just forgotten. Uh, Tia Zarina's evil dwarf sidekick manages to sneak in and open the dinosaur's cage since... Uh, you know, since she does, uh, she doesn't have an ancient curse to uphold, and she needs to hedge her bets, right? So the diminutive Gypsy is eaten for his troubles, uh, and uh, Guanji escapes into the rodeo arena. In a matter of a few scenes, Tia Zarina is trampled to death by patrons fleeing the stadium. Anticlimactic. Uh, she's like the main baddie here, and our elderly paleontologist is crushed by a piece of Guanji's cage once again anticlimactic. There's no acknowledgement of their individual deaths, their demises, nor even like a moment to reflect on it. It just happens. And they're just killed in a fashion, kind of like a a red shirt in Star Trek. It's it's nuts. Um, You know, they spend so much time building these characters and giving them a backstory and fleshing them out and they die in in a moment's notice and it's not even acknowledged. And, uh, and, you know, if you think about it, Carlos does wear red. So maybe there's something there. Then I think the most recognizable scene happens next uh, in Guanji. And that's the a subsequent skirmish between the titular character and then a circus elephant. It's old world meets newish world, I guess. A 30-foot-long, two-ton Jurassic Apex Predator versus the 10,000-pound tusk behemoth of the modern world. Uh, dare I say it? Anticlimactically, the elephant goes down without much of a fight, but with some like really weird noises. And uh, and the band keeps playing on the whole time, which is hilarious. Uh, the show must go on, I guess. So with the elephant out of the way, uh, Guanji then proceeds to rampage through the old Mexican town. He snags him a random for from the street for fun. And the cowboys that aren't fleeing in terror try to attack the brood. And let's just call them unconventional ways. Uh, keep in mind that this is a beast that has survived gunshots, team roping, a Styracosaurus, an Asian elephant, shady gypsy dwarves. Yet, for some reason, the final scenes of the characters believe they will stop him by th- throwing a gun at him, by trying to slap him with their hat, uh, and uh, it's just ridiculous. Um, oh yeah, in the last moments of the film, Tuck goes after him with a chair. Yes, because chairs are way more deadly than bullets. Um, he even upgrades to a flagpole and potentially a, uh, uh, you know, used to use potentially as a slaying tool. Uh, in Tuck's defense, he did yell, hi uh, and that usually works in karate, but not here in cowboy versus dinosaur movies. So, um, <laughs> MacGyvers of the military, they are not. So Tuck, TJ, and Lope manage to lock themselves in a cathedral with Guanji, and luckily for them, discover Guanji hates church organ music. I'm thinking, I'm harkening back to Godzilla 1985, he doesn't like birds. It's like, this guy just hates organ music. So maybe he's Jewish, I don't know. After a flagpole to the head and some well-timed arson, Guanji is consumed in the collapsing cathedral and burned alive as our heroes escape. The entire town looks on as the demon beast is consumed by these flames, and Lope begins to cry. So much death and destruction caused by the greed-fueled desire to disrupt the natural world for a quick profit. Just like King Kong, just like Lost World, but this one had an Eohippus. 
So it's no surprise that Valley of Guanji failed to achieve commercial success as it was released kind of part of the, the double feature route, right, with the biker film uh, during a time when dinosaur monster movies were losing kind of their critical appeal. However, Guanji has avoided the fate of some other similar attempts, mostly because of Harry Hausen's efforts here to create some really lasting images like Guanji and the elephant or the never-ending roping scene, uh, the Onithomimus being killed. Uh, so not only was like the, the latter scene used basically shot for shot in Jurassic Park, but, uh, but Guanji's made cameos throughout the decades. Um, you know, so if you gander at any television screen since the 1980s, you've seen him on Scarecrow and Mrs. King. You might notice him on, uh, Dr. Ross Geller, like I mentioned earlier in fan and friends. Um, he watches it in the hospital during an episode. Uh, I think it's the one where Joey speaks French. Uh, Guanji even gets a call out in, in 2011, Scooby-Doo legend of the Phantasaur. Clearly, other folks liked Valley of Guanji too, and despite it, the affinity for its anticlimactic moments and the weird choices of weaponry, very, very, very flaky characters, and the recycling of successful plot elements, I'm not sure if Guanji dug deeper as a certain uh, geriatric Brit paleontologist would have liked, but then again, he was crushed by a falling circus cage in the middle of a rodeo arena in Mexico, so who the hell knows? Uh, but I don't know if it needed to dig deeper because it is visually appealing, and I think just the overall premise gets you through it and that everything else is good enough. And so, you know, I would say if, you know, if I gave it five stars, or excuse me, out of a scale of five stars, it'd probably be in that three and a half range, which is still very enjoyable. And it's probably in my middle tier of Harryhausen films. Um, it's not a Sinbad and it's not a, um, a Jason or a Clash, but it's still good. And I love it. And I love dinosaurs. And like I said, Allosaurus versus Elephant, sign me the hell up. So, you know, that's Valley of Guanji. And uh, I love it. Hopefully you like, enjoyed my quick little run through and I feel better about kind of where it sits in kind of the pantheon of Harryhausen and the pantheon of dinosaur movies for me. And it's an enjoyable watch. And, um, and I think I said, I think it's a, it's a good one. And, uh, yeah. So thank you guys for listening. You know, I know I don't get to talk to you guys by myself a lot and, and hopefully you enjoyed it and I'll do more of these over time. Uh, if I have moments like this where I just have to get it out and, uh, hopefully you guys will listen and, uh, and yeah, so that's Valley Guanji. I'm JK. This is YHS on Monster Island and I will catch you next time, everybody. Adios from the Valley of